0: Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly, I'm Drew Creasman.
1: And I am Ira Creasman.
0: And on this episode, we continue our conversation on the plot, themes, and characters of Final Fantasy VI. When last we left our heroes, Locke and Terra were fleeing from the mountain town of Narsh, away from both the soldiers guarding that town and from the Empire in pursuit of her a former or maybe current soldier of theirs. She's still in the throes of amnesia here, has remembered her name, but not much else. Locke is rushing her to some help, someone he believes can help, and she has decided to trust him, mostly because he defended her against some scary-looking soldier people. And so they're off to the kingdom of Figaro. Yes, we, we pronounce it Figaro, not Figaro. I've heard it pronounced that way. We're not going to do that. Uh, but it's fine if you do.
1: <laughs> Here is where we get our first look at the overworld map and the overworld music, which turns out is Terra's theme. Uh, there's not a whole lot to do between the town of Narsh and Figaro Castle. You go almost immediately from frozen mountains in the north to sandy waste deserts, uh, just a little bit to the south. Uh, we get our first random battles, and and pretty soon... We're just we're in this giant stone castle with these big fans on the on the towers, uh, and we are introduced to a new character.
0: Yeah, it first, uh, the first character really, as you mentioned, it is the castle. I remember thinking this is a really interesting thing. I've never seen anything quite like this. I hadn't been introduced to steampunk before. As you mentioned, the fans and kind of steam coming out. So it looks like a medieval castle, but with these kind of turn of the century additions to it that
1: make it still kind of unlike any other castle I've seen. Our treasure hunter, adventurer, Han Solo-type lock, Cole, escorts Terra into the throne room of Figaro Castle, where he appears to be known, because the guards let him pass, right? Right. Uh, so we get up into the throne room, and we meet the king of Figaro. Not only of this castle, but of the surrounding region, we will find out. And he's uh, he's quite the character. Why don't we take a moment here to to talk about... King Edgar Roni Figaro.
0: Yeah, quite the memorable and classic character, uh, as we're about to get into, not always for the best reasons, maybe, but he sure is an interesting entry into the history of Final Fantasy characters to this day. Uh, And it begins with his introduction. Walks right up to him sitting on the throne. He says something sort of about Terra instead of to her, something vague like, oh, this woman? Referring to whatever has gone on in her past that we still don't really know all that much about. And then he walks right up to her, looks her up and down, walks away, and as she's starting to say, no, just who the hell do you think you are? He turns around and says, how rude of me to turn my back on a lady. And his sprite does the little finger wag thing. He's being very coy and playful and flirty
1: in what to this point has been a pretty serious and bleak story. This is when our screen goes dark and we get that sort of as though this were a play and uh, we get the character introduction. The young king of Figaro Castle, ally to the Empire and a master designer of machinery.
0: There's actually a lot going on there. We'll just begin with the first thing as a lie... ...that we're about to find out here very shortly. And that's very important to the character of Edgar Figaro. ...that in his description, like in what we're given in the program... ...we're actually just straight up lied to. Right. And we'll, we'll get really deep into that here here in just a second. But the other thing too about him being a master designer of machinery... I think is one of the reasons why he's so memorable and why he, in addition to all the weird stuff we're going to get into, he really does sit at the heart of the world of Final Fantasy VI. He is the mind at the forefront of the technological revolution that is the setting for the story that's being told here. And so, in a way, he gets to be the character
1: embodiment of the world of Final Fantasy VI. Sure. I I tend to think of him as being in opposition to... That might be too strong, but opposite Cid in a lot of ways. As we'll get more into as we talk about Magitech, Sid is all about the revolution of technology in its combination with magic, while Edgar seems to be more on the scientific end of that. That's not quite right either, because it's not that magic can't be explained scientifically in this world. But he's the one who is... uh, uh, about the machinery the mechanics his special ability is to use a variety of tools uh, all of which he has designed uh and and none of which have anything to do with magic so his his technology is steam power whereas sid's technology is magic power yeah
0: and their personalities
1: could not be more different either um well, why don't we do a quick visual sketch, and then we'll talk about the personality, because I think that's where we're going to get into some conversation here. Yeah. So visually, he he's a got a long blonde ponytail, uh, appears to be sort of a European king, uh, or European nobleman in a lot of ways. And, uh, in the Amano artwork, he's got the flowing blue cape with lots of fringe. His armor is blue, his pants are blue. He's got the long, thin rapier kind of sword. He's definitely a European lord-looking character, even though there's no Europe, obviously, in this world. Uh, And like you said, he is what we are lied to about his alliance with the Empire, but he is a young king and he is a designer of machinery. So at least those two things are true.
0: Yeah, he is 27. It's interesting. Two of our first three characters have the word young in their introduction. Tara, who is 18, Edgar, who is 27, which may or may not be Important to uh, the the rest of what happens here. Before we jump into that, too, there, there's also the next line of dialogue that he gives, repeats this sort of lie. He assures Terra as Locke leaves the room that she has nothing to worry about just because she's an imperial soldier, that Figaro and the Empire are allies. And it's this interesting kind of political trick they're playing on her where As we've already been told of Locke, and we're really about to find out very shortly here about Edgar, they are a part of this underground group called the Returners who are working to overthrow the Empire, at least kick them out of these lands. And so Terra having this amnesia problem, not knowing who she is, but knowing she is supposed to be a soldier of the Empire, and who knows, maybe she has friends and family there. They're kind of playing her here.
1: Uh, A little, but but it's kind of odd because the... We also know that the empire is after her, right? Arvis has made it clear. So it seems like a strange play from the king to say, "Oh, I also am an ally of the empire. You have nothing to worry about for me because isn't because the empire is coming for her."
0: Exactly. And so and she has had this dream of her burning people to death at the behest of this psycho clown, so she's probably, you know, trying to stay away from the empire as well. And and really, her life is in Locke's hands at this point. And Locke, rightfully, he knows well, but she doesn't. Does put her hands into Edgar's here.
1: All right. So let's talk about Edgar's character. So when I was a kid and I first played this game, I just thought it was kind of funny that he was a bit of a womanizer. Like, oh, isn't that uh, you know, isn't that hilarious? He the way he uh, talks to and about women. It's, it's kind of funny, right? Because he's supposed to be an important character, but he's always uh, going after women. Now, when I look at this character, I think, dude, that is gross. We're about to have uh, controlling Terra because the boys need to talk about things. Uh, we're going to control Tara and she's going to wander around the castle. And we're going to hear these stories from people who talk about Edgar making a pass at them. And that might be all fun in games in in a in a place where Edgar is on let's say the same social status as a person. It might not be totally inappropriate to to flirt with every woman you see, but uh it doesn't it doesn't feel especially good, and especially not because he is the king, like these people are his subjects, they work for him, and so when when some of the maids talk about oh you know the king." made a pass at me that does not feel especially good to me
0: yeah and there are two really especially egregious examples of this one comes up here shortly and it's just as you're walking around the castle you can meet a very young girl who's maybe five or six who says that the king promised to marry her one day which is maybe i'll talk about that in a minute Uh, But then he also kind of makes a, if you were just a little bit older or in just a couple of years, little girl, comment to Realm later on, who's 10. Yeah. So, I will say first, upon a replay of this game a few years ago, I had the exact same reaction you did, which was, oh, this is maybe not quite as cute and funny as I remembered it being this is maybe actually pretty problematic. That being said, I've given this a lot of thought, maybe too much. And <laughs> I, I have a few counterpoints to this. Uh, and we, we've talked a lot about whether or not we would remake these games in, in some modern format, whether it be a video game or a TV show or a movie. And I think if we were to do that, you couldn't change this element of edgar it's it's kind of important to who he is as a person that he has this what i will call a character flaw because that's my first point is it is presented as a character flaw his behavior in the text is not endorsed by the other characters in the story and he's outright rejected by everyone we see in the story, if if he's ever been successful at, say, coercing a woman into bed, and it's never really made explicitly sexual, but if we want to assume that because there's Nintendo censorship a little bit and it's implied, he's never really successful at this. But going back to our overall point that we've talked about a lot of times, uh, one of my major, you know, these are not real critiques, is that a, a depiction of a thing is not an endorsement of a thing. And I think at least... If you want to critique Edgar as a character, that's fine, but I don't think it's fair to say, well, Final Fantasy VI, by making Edgar a hero, is promoting his behavior because his brother, who we'll meet and hear about in a little while, Locke, Terra, everybody calls him out on this, and they see it within the story as a character flaw. Uh, One of the women in the castle that you'll meet says he showers his attention on women. Most are too smart to pay any uh, any attention to him.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think, though he can be uh, a a little gross at times, I don't think the story ever valorizes that behavior. I think you're right. It's portrayed as a flaw.
0: The second part of it, and and this is getting into tricky territory, but I, I think it has to be mentioned, is that as we've already discussed... Edgar is playing a part. He is acting a role, playing a role, if you will. Uh, he, he's a, a character within a play, within an opera, within a play. And he's pretending to be an ally to the Empire. And th- there's actually this great line right after the scene uh, that we've just discussed. They're still in the throne room, and, Ed- and Tara says, "'Why are you helping me? Is this just because I have abilities?' And he says, first of all, I'll give you three reasons. First, your beauty has captivated me. Second, I'm dying to know if I'm your type. And third, I guess a distant third would be your abilities. He's right. using in that moment his flirtatious whatever. That's a real thing that's there as as a mask for We know that his number one intention here is about her abilities and is about winning the war. So I think a lot of his flirtiness is about
1: him playing a part. Sure. I think in the same way you see in various adaptations of Batman, you see Bruce Wayne being the playboy, uh, flirting with women, uh, having lots of different relationships, never settling down. That's all the mask behind which... Batman is able to then operate. Uh, I I think if we were to remake this, I would want to think about Edgar in a similar vein. Not that he's not attracted to every woman he sees, uh, even if they are inappropriately young, but also that he uses that, that he plays the fool in a lot of ways because he does not want the Empire to see him as an enemy because he's trying to protect his people. I could buy that. Did you look down at the notes further down no i did not i
0: literally have batman parallel parentheses <laughs> fake playboy written on the notes further down seriously
1: i, I have not looked at your notes i promise <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> well considering i thought we were going to argue about this mo- more and it seems like we're pretty much just in agreement surprise yeah. surprise I and drew agree about final fantasy
0: <laughs> yeah
1: i know right Uh, Yeah, Uh,
0: Edgar even famously in the second half of the game changes his name and goes into hiding, costume, changes his identity again. Another parallel to all of this. So there's... Right. You know, who is Edgar really? And in the scene we're about to watch, we'll see that probably a lot of this goes back to this moment when he decided he had to be this thing he didn't really want to be. He lost the coin toss. Well... Yeah, uh... (laughs) Before we we get too deep into that, though, let me finish one last thing on what I have marked, by the way, titled Edgar's Troubling Ways with Women. So I am making the argument that they're maybe not as bad as it seems, but I think if you wanted to take the most charitable interpretation, you could even say that Final Fantasy VI here is making an interesting comment on powerful men, especially in the past. Uh, Not that it's completely different uh, these days, but we are putting a little bit of our modern sensibilities onto this. You know, like you talked about them being subservient to Edgar, which back then was everyone just kind of assumed was what Kings did. Now, we're trying to portray these people as heroes and for an audience that can include kids as well, but it is important to remember that it was common in the kind of times that these games, that we're a little past the renaissance here, but not so far past that it wasn't still common for young girls to be married off before coming of age. You know, people still died a lot more often and a lot younger, so it was important to have big families and for girls to get married and start having babies, sometimes not that long after somebody of realm's age, or for somebody who is five years old to be promised to a king Uh, marriage contracts and, and telling young girls that they're beautiful is something that people still do to this day that really bothers me, actually. But it's relatively common and something I learned just kind of while looking through a little bit of research on this, too. I never would have known this. I don't usually check out the FF Ultimanias. I think that stuff's interesting, but I prefer just let the text tell me the story. But apparently when Edgar and Sabin were born, their father was 33. Their mother was 16.
1: Huh. Okay.
0: And so I think by including and again depicting all of that, but not endorsing all of that, they're making an interesting comment here on powerful men and their relationships with women.
1: Especially with powerful women. Because it's not like Terra or Celeste or Realm or even the matron here in the castle lets edgar do anything to them that they wouldn't want done
0: i guess and i think that's the most positive spin on it is that every single female he does this to shows their own agency in rejecting him and having their own goals and their own desires and you know she cuts tara cuts right through his bullshit immediately and she does uh, after he gives him or after he gives her the three reasons and tries to be charming about it. She literally says, I guess a lot of girls would have found him dashing, but I just, nah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and she kind of attributes that to her uh, not understanding her own emotions. Right. But I think part of Tara's story uh, is that she understands her emotions better than she thinks. And learning that learning her own emotional intelligence is important. Right.
0: So once Terra has decided that even though this guy is kind of a creep, maybe a little bit, that she's still going to trust him. She, she doesn't find him charming, but she doesn't think he's going to hurt her. She's going to hang out here. She's free to roam about the castle. She's going to explore a little bit, maybe try to learn a thing or two about her new friends, maybe about herself. And in doing so, she comes upon the matron of the castle. The old woman who took care of Edgar, and as we learn here in very Super Nintendo RPG-like fashion, by the way, you, you walk into this person's room. She's sitting at the table. You walk right up to her, and she just begins, Edgar as a twin brother. Uh, it, it is funny the way they just kind of start telling any random person who walks in a story, uh, but this is a, a great little story. I think it's little moments of storytelling like these that set final fantasy six apart for a lot of people we get this brief flashback and again another character introduction before we will meet the character properly in the story where uh so she says he has a twin brother he was such a nice boy and then we get this dot 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 flashback cut to edgar sitting at a table and a young man who looks very much like him but still different comes into the room and says brother what's wrong with father what's all of this talk of his successor and edgar snaps at him and says what's wrong with you can't you see how thin his face has become and then he gets up and, and begins to walk away. And we get in this moment, like a, a really great understanding of the difference between these two characters, because Edgar turns his back on his brother and he walks out of the room. He pauses for just a moment and, and leaves. In the original Super Nintendo translation from Ted Woolsey, the only line that we get from Sabin at this point is a one word question. Tears? In the updated translations, we got a, a fuller sentence, which I still think actually works well, and Sabin says, are you crying after Edgar has left the room? Edgar doesn't want to show his emotions to his brother, who's who's busted into the room emotional. What's going on? Why is everyone talking about father? And he's very upset. I don't understand. I, he's not accepting what's going to happen. Edgar has already accepted that their father is going to die, and is at a like this somber horrifying not peace with it but he's already starting to become that person who has to be strong for his brother for the kingdom he's starting to play the part and and that's cryptic and we'll learn more about exactly how that went down later Uh, we we capped the story coming back to normal time and matron saying when he ran away He was such a sweet little child, I wonder what he's like now. So we know that that, that he's gone.
1: And that he's almost certainly changed. Right. (laughs) Nice little hint there. Alright, so after hearing about Sabin, Tara makes her way back to the throne room. There's a brief conversation between her and Locke, where Locke explains that uh, Edgar's not really an ally of the Empire. He's collaborating with a group called the Returners. Uh, and Locke is basically his messenger, his go-between. Uh, but that he is, he's planning to fight against the Empire. Which is a good reveal because we're about to have uh, a little interaction with the Empire. And one of the Empire's top generals? Okay. I, I don't know why you'd make this dude a general, Emperor gastal but alright. Yeah. So, <laughs> So, trudging through the sand of the desert of figaro is a man in bright green and red with possibly face paint flanked by a pair of soldiers uh he's got sand on his shoes and and he uh he comes to figaro castle and one of the guards tries to get in the way and he like just slaps him aside
0: oh hang on you're not gonna fly right by all that fantastic dialogue are you
1: well i mean if you would like to draw attention to it (laughs) Go right ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's, there's just a couple of lines in here that I really love that in, in this introduction of Kefka, who we'll do a, a deeper character study on a little bit later because we just went so long on Edgar and want to get through the plot a little bit here. And there'll be plenty of time to talk about Kefka as he becomes more important in the story. But I do love this character introduction. As you mentioned, he, he makes the soldiers that are going with him. Uh, clean sand off of his boots in the middle of a desert. He's very clearly right. a crazy person. We get this r- right away. The son of a submariner or son of a submariner. I'm not quite sure. You're supposed to say that. Never heard anyone say that before or since. And I think it's fantastic.
1: Um, uh, the music he, really helps to sell the goofiness, possibly not quite hingedness of this yeah. character, also.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into that more in the in the music episode too. But it, it's it's all working well here. Even when he says like these recon jobs or the pits, there are so many good just little lines in here. You, Edgar, why do you have to live in the middle of the desert? You, you know, <laughs> you pinhead. I think he calls him. Uh, it, it's just this great weird little introduction to this guy who fits into that kind of Joker class of characters. Uh, pretty obviously and purposefully though there are some differences we'll talk about yeah just arrives and as you said the the guard at the front gate tries to stop him slaps that dude in the face right out of the way just barges in uh clearly a person who lacks in subtlety
1: Uh, and he demands that king edgar turn over a fugitive and and Edgar says, "Oh, she must be very valuable if they sent Kefka all the way here to Figaro to collect her." And like you said, lacks subtlety, right? It's like, eh, she's, mm. she's, she's, she's minor, she's a minor person, just got just need just need her back. I just need her back. Uh, and another Edgar great doesn't... line of
0: dialogue from Edgar here, when he's playing coy and using his womanizing as a shield he says well first of all he he, he says are you talking about that imperial witch Magitech writing woman who's been burning everyone to death you know i'll try to see if uh, edgar will <laughs> or or if kefka will give the game away and then he sees, says well, you see the problem is that there are more girls in here than there are grains of sand out there So I'm not quite sure which girl it is you're looking for. Like, he's playing him, man. It's good stuff.
1: Yeah, that is, I I do think that that line in particular lends to the idea that Edgar is not quite the womanizer he pretends to be. Maybe a little bit, though
0: he definitely still is because there are times we'll talk about them as they come up where there's no one to be playing for and he just kind of says now don't go get yourself hurt beautiful it's like dude right now <laughs> uh but anyway they decide you know that they are allies so they're going to let kefka look around but Locke is going to go hide Terra. they're they're going to wait for some kind of conference, presumably the next day, to figure out what they're going to do here. Uh, but Edgar knows he's not dealing with a super reasonable person either, and so he's got a plan should what happens, happen.
1: <laughs> right, and what happens if Kef- is Kefka sets a stone castle on fire. Yeah. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Which would suggest some kind of Supernatural assistance?
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely something weird going on with however he managed to set this castle made almost entirely of stone on fire. But he does. But he does. It, everyone's freaking out, as you would.
1: But Edgar, like we said, he's a clever dude. Uh, and this is one of the most bizarre, fun things about Figaro Castle. I think it is the bizarre fun thing about Figaro Castle, right?
0: Yeah, I think you, you, you needed to overreach there. You needed to say this is one of the most bizarre fun things about fantasy style storytelling <laughs> that I've ever seen. I, it, when I think about our eventual project to remake this game, <laughs> you and me. I think about what this would look like this scene when the castle shifts form and all the steam goes and all the fans blow and the, the bridges contract and it sinks into the desert as our heroes leap from the top onto the back of chocobos to ride off. And come on and the music
1: picks up and, and they're yeah. And they, they make their getaway. Do you it's remember really what cool. music
0: it is? We'll, we'll talk about this more in the music episode, but do you remember what music it is?
1: I thought it was Locke's music. It is. Yeah. Because
0: Locke's theme is also a stand-in for we're making a great adventurous escape theme.
1: Right, right, right. It's kind of like Chrono's theme standing in for we're going to make the decision to stand against the end of the world. Yeah, right. Locke's theme stands in for we're going to do something really cool right now. Uh, so they escape on Chocobos, but Kefka has some soldiers in Magitek armor. And so uh, he sends the, the Magitek armored Imperials after our heroes on Chocobos, and there's a fight!
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and during the fight, it would only make sense for you to have Terra use magic, Right.
0: Yeah, I guess I don't know what happens. Do, have people played this game and not used magic with her in this fight and not gotten the cutscene?
1: I imagine they must have.
0: I, I suppose that that must have happened. But yeah, the it's one of my favorite parts of this game, of, of the million and a half favorite parts of this game.
1: It is a little incongruous in that uh, presumably you've been using magic in front of Locke this whole time, and he knows that she can use magic. Like, he's seen her do it. He, he, he knew before he even met her that she could. So right. the, the reaction is a little incongruous. That said, Edgar hasn't they, seen it yet.
0: And he's the one who first freaks out. And Locke takes a minute and doesn't freak out. And Edgar did know that she had a, abilities as well. They're referenced in their first conversation. But I, they do also mention, he's just like, well, yeah, but I've never actually seen magic before. Never seen it, so Locke maybe had Edgar hasn't, but the other thing that they drive home in kind of the next conversation is they keep talking about it they by the way, they whisper to each other in front of her again. I know very I rude. know, come on they ask her where she learned that she apologizes and gets really embarrassed and feels bad again uh, as you destroy the enemies and flee they keep talking about it and edgar makes a really insensitive remark but i think that's kind of all part of the overreacting to it is it's really dawning on them not just that you know like you said it's one thing to say she she's got magic and it's one thing to see her kind of burn a couple of cave goblins or whatever (laughs) is running around but i think in this moment it occurs to them that she could be the key to winning the war she really is. Like, they. that's even what they've been working for, but now they've seen it in action. Right. And Edgar says, you know, not only does he say that out loud in front of her that magic could be the key to winning the war, he also just kind of thinking out loud on the craziness of it says, no human being has magic. Nice, dude. Forgetting the... Yeah. Um... Her forgetting for a moment that Tara doesn't remember who or what she is, and so planting a thought like that in her head may be not the, the wisest thing to do. Or nicest.
1: Yeah, for a womanizer, he doesn't exactly uh, know how to talk to this young lady, does he? Uh, th- there's also a, a moment in this conversation where Tara asks if those were bad people. So we've had this flashback where she burned these soldiers uh, at Kefka's behest. And she like she can remember doing it, but she didn't really feel anything because she was under the control of the slave crown. And so I feel like... I mean, she knows at this point that the Empire are the bad guys. Or at least she's got some sense of that's what's going on. The Empire is trying to take over. And they're using force and they're using magitech to do it. So asking if they're bad people... For a long time, that felt incongruous to me also. But I do think that it's, it's more about her trying to understand her emotions, trying to understand her feelings, because I think she feels bad having fought off, probably killed, with the assistance of Edgar and Locke, these Imperial soldiers. And even if they're the enemy, even if they're the bad guys, like shouldn't she feel bad about having killed them? At least I think that's what she's talking about.
0: I think that's all correct. It's just more of her struggling with her central problem of, as you've said, figuring out who she is emotionally and how she's going to fit into a world. And and her problem just gets more complicated from here.
1: So riding on Chocobos, we make our way to the uh, the Figaro Cave, which is the sort of the pass between South Figaro, which presumably is also ruled by the Figaro royal family. Uh, and North Figaro, where the castle and the desert are. It's worth noting there's a recovery spring in here. I I really like how peppered throughout some of the caves, there's just a pool of water, and you can walk up to it, and it will heal everybody. It's got a neat little sound effect. It's very satisfying. There's a turtle in the pond at one point. Not important now. Will become important later. Uh, And once through the cave, it's a short jaunt to the city of South Figaro. South Figaro is uh, big as far as uh, Super Nintendo Final Fantasy towns go. Lots to do here. There's uh, there's definitely a class structure in this town. Uh, there's one very, very big house, which you can loot the basement of, which is pretty cool. <laughs>
0: and that plays a bigger role later, right? That's the house you have to sneak into with lock.
1: Right, right. Here, here in a bit, that's going to become uh, politically important. But there's uh, item shops weapon shops. There's a chocobo stable. There are two buildings that I would say are of immediate storyline importance. One is the house of a man named Duncan. He's not there. His wife is there, but uh, he's not. And she will explain that her husband, who's a martial arts master, has taken his students to Mount poles. Yeah. And the other is the pub. Yeah, one of the things I
0: really like about the way this again the way the story is told in Final Fantasy VI is as you arrive in town, you see this mysterious figure that stands out from everybody else, moving quickly through town. It would be your natural instinct to follow that figure. You don't get a great look at him unless you know it's coming. And you know you're you're playing it for the fifth time. You're trying to catch him as he gets to the pub. He goes into the pub, and if you follow him in there.
1: He owes his allegiance to no one and will do anything for money. He comes and goes like the wind.
0: Shadow. You're introduced. uh, Again, kind of a double introduction before we're fully introduced to this character, both seeing him walk through the pub. Because you can walk around before you ever go there. Uh, But then you walk up, you see him, you try to talk to him, we get this little... Uh, Character introduction, uh, as we do with everybody else. Uh, But he he doesn't join the party at this time. There's a a couple quick statements made. Edgar tells us that Shadow, he slit his mama's throat for a nickel.
1: Interestingly,
0: Hmm. yeah. um, In later translations, that would be he would slit his best friend's throat for a nickel.
1: That's got a little more
0: storyline resonance. Doesn't it, though? There's something I like about the Mama's line, because I think the original intention here was to oversell, right? This is a person whose face is covered. He's dressed in black from foot to top of his head. He's got a a couple of kind of gold adornments, but he's mostly just a black ninja standing next to a, a dog. And, and people gossip about him So it's more, I think, eye-popping To say this guy would kill his own mother for money That's like the juicier gossip, right? But the, the foreshadowing and, and storyline importance of He'd slit his best friend's throat for a nickel Is just as interesting
1: And if you try to talk to him He's not interested in talk to, talking to you He won't respond But he's got a dog with him And if you try to talk to the dog, he says, the dog eats strangers. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Leave us. The dog eats strangers. That's it.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. And that's it. That's all you can do with Shadow at this point in the story. And he becomes a, a much bigger part of what goes on throughout. But... What an interesting concept for a character much like the idea of mysterious ninja he he comes and goes like the wind as it says right there in in the introduction.
1: So once you've bought all the things you want to buy because the next dungeon is actually kind of hard if you're not prepared for it you can go straight to Mount Colts but also there's a a little spot on the map that is worth going to because uh, it's this little cabin and you go into the cabin And you can look at these various things um, and Edgar will respond like, oh, these are the flowers he likes and these plates uh, look familiar and it it smells like his favorite dish in here. And and then, you know, you can't really do anything. There's nothing to do here except have Edgar have these responses and then when you leave, Edgar stops and he says, I'm sure of it. Sabin has been here.
0: Alright, alright. Again, a little more trail. Characters don't just barge into this story. Well, one or two of them do uh, but, <laughs> Kefka sure did uh, <laughs> But no, even he was We had seen him in flashbacks and stuff before Twice sure. before we were introduced
1: to him Yeah, in the introduction and then in flashbacks And then even his introduction c- Considering what Kefka going to become That goofy introduction is So innocuous, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: But here again, we've heard about Sabin, and now we're I don't know smelling his dishes or whatever we're 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 hot on his trail we're we're like oh man this this long lost brother might be around we're before meeting him getting the feeling that we're about to meet him, which is i th- I think is a cool way to do it, and that even continues with the the next thing that happens when you decide to go up to Mount Coles, as you said and uh, you start seeing a, another shadowy figure running out in front of you that you can't quite get a glimpse of as you make your way to the top of the mountain.
1: There are all kinds of enemies in this uh, mountain dungeon. The one I want to point out, though, is the giant bear, which I think is called an Ipoo, which would suggest to me that it's named after Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I hope it is. But it's it's an I-P-O-O-H, and it the implication is... Well, okay, so so you fight a variety of enemies. I point out the bear in particular because then when you fight that shadowy figure who turns out to be Vargas, the son of Duncan, the martial arts master, he comes with a couple of bears, which suggests that either the bears are tame or they train against bears. Yeah. Anyway, you you fight him, you can't beat him and you uh like you you have to deal a certain amount of damage for the storyline thing to trigger. And then you'll get like knocked back off the map and Sabin will come in and he's got these big muscles and he is able to defeat Vargas not by knocking down his hit points, but by you have to figure out how to use one of his uh, blitzes.
0: And there's a storyline implication for that, too, because the whole point here about Vargas having gone evil as they kind of converse during their fight, uh, which is interesting, have a back and forth and... You learn that Vargas killed his own father because he believed that he chose Sabin to be his successor over Vargas, which Sabin tells him was not true, but then Sabin busts out uh, a combo move that Vargas had yet to learn because of his thirst for power, and that is what throws him off.
1: So that's twice now Sabin has rejected a leadership role. Yeah. So you defeat Vargas, it's kind of sad. One of the things I think is funny here is Tara compares Sabin to a bear, yeah, which is why I bring up the bear enemy,
0: and he immediately adopts it where you know they kind of explain what they're doing, and the brothers have their oh, it's so great to see you. it's been so long, and you look fantastic, you look like you've been working out in the mountains for twenty years, or you know whatever for ten right, years, right, uh and then Sabin says, this is another actually great line we get about understanding where the world is at at this point. He essentially says, I've watched the world go to hell from the top of this mountain as the umpire grows more and more powerful. I've been waiting for some people to rise up and do something about it. Looks like you guys are going to do something about it. I'll go with you. Could you think you could use a bear like me? Immediately adopts it. It's a great line. So, after Sabin joins the team and you can climb down the other side of Mount Colts to reach your destination this entire time, the hideout of the returners to meet Bannon, the leader of the returners, Locke, Edgar, and Sabin really taking Terra to meet this person who's supposed to be in charge of whatever the resistance effort is against the empire, to learn what the plan may. Or may not be. The hideout is just dug out into this cave but you know it kind of has a lot of the cool little relics you would hope to see from a steampunk fantasy hideout there's bookshelves and lanterns and people writing important notes with pen and parchment and you know everybody's looking very serious
1: it is kind of like an it's like an old spy movie hideout kind of like like the french resistance or something
0: uh, and then they walk Tara into the back room and there stands a man with the most glorious brownish red hair, depending on which sketch of him you're looking at. Just full beard, uh, as much hair as you can imagine on a person's head and face, kind of actually pretty outlandish robes. He appears to be wearing some greens and reds and oranges in there, maybe a little bit unkempt looking, looks like he's been living in a cave, but still seriousness in this man's eyes uh, commands an immediate kind of respect. And you get that certainly in the very first thing that happens, which is Edgar, who we know is the king of a country, kind of walks in and says, Bannon, we've brought the girl with us. You tell us what to do here. And rather than our introduction to the king, where he immediately hits on the 18-year-old girl, um, <laughs> Bannon gives this eloquent speech. First, there are a couple of questions. He says, is she the girl who can talk to espers? Uh, and Edgar explains that the Empire had control over her.
1: I think that's especially important, because if if she's going to be an ally to the Returners, she, it, it would be difficult for the Returners to accept her If she was a cold-blooded killer with magical fire.
0: Yeah, and he even repeats this story we've been hearing throughout, Bannon does. says, I heard, you know, carrier pigeons brought word that she wiped out 50 of the Empire's best soldiers in just a few minutes. And instinctively, Terra says, that's a lie. But it's probably not.
1: Well, especially since we've got that memory of hers, right? Right. Uh,
0: but again, she's... Her, her inner struggle. She doesn't want that to be true. Or she doesn't want that... That's not me. That, that wasn't me, maybe. You know, she's that, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. Uh, and then Edgar, you know, reminds us. So she doesn't remember anything. And then Bannon sort of drops his guard and delivers his sermon. He says, perhaps you've heard this story. Once when people were pure and innocent, there was a box that they were told never to open. But one man went and opened it anyway. He unleashed all the evils of the world. Envy, greed, pride, violence, control. All that was left in the box was a single ray of light, hope. We now confront those evils, and you are that last ray of light, our only hope. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at Final Fantasy Weekly at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. While well, the podcast is still free to listen to via archive.org or to stream on Patreon, you can now download it on your regular podcast services, and you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when the party gets separated. We meet a noble hero and a wild boy and board a mysterious train.